We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Intelligent Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adobita. Our guest on the podcast coming up is Yasha Monk. The writer and political scientist is here to discuss his book, The Identity Trap, which explores what Monk refers to as the modern world's counterproductive obsession with group identity in all its forms. Joining Monk in conversation is writer Tomiwa Owalide, author of the book, This Is Not America. Did you know that if you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get even more of this discussion? Head to intelligencesquared.com forward slash membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of this chat plus a ton of extra content, including our series on AI, Power Trip, ad-free listening, and updates on all our live events too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's join Tomiwa Owalide speaking to Yasha Monk. The very first question I want to ask you, Yasha, is with the current war in Ukraine, um, with Israel's conflicts with Gaza, with the climate crisis, do you think writing about identity issues is a distraction from what some people might consider the more salient issues affecting us in the world today? Uh, well, thanks, thanks for that question. Um, and, and I don't think it is. I, I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I've been worried about the crisis of democracy since before it was cool. I made my name in books like The People Versus Democracy, warning about the rise of populism, especially, if not exclusively, on the right, um, uh, and and what it would do to our democratic systems. Um, and I remain very concerned about that. Uh, I'm coming to you virtually. I'm sad not to be able to be in person with everybody uh, from New York City. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump is running neck to neck with Joe Biden in polls for the 2024 elections. And I'm worried about that, too. So why write a book about uh, what I see as uh, the, the threat uh, from a misguided set of ideas uh, about race, gender, and sexual orientation that has grown up on the left, on the part of the political spectrum uh, to which I myself belong over the course of the last decade. Um, well, I, I think these ideas are a trap, which is to say that there's a lure, there's something that 
uh, is appealing to people that promises to make the world better. Uh, the identity, the, the ideology claims that it is what allows people in the most principled, uh, radical, uncompromising possible way uh, to uh, take on the injustices that undoubtedly persist in our societies. But I think it is a trap, as we've started to see in the last years. It's a trap that makes it much harder for progressive institutions to actually serve their important missions. It is a trap that in key uh, public policy decisions leads us astray, makes it harder for us uh, to actually um, uh, cre find solutions uh, that will gain broad support and that will make the world a better place. I think it actually encourages in our politics and in our culture a zero-sum conflict um, between different uh, ethnic and other identity groups, which is going to make it much harder to sustain our political systems. And as a result, um, it's a chimera to think that you need to prioritize between fighting um, right-wing populism and fighting uh, this ideology. Um, Donald Trump's victory in 2016 was one of the reasons uh, why it became very hard to criticize these ideas on the left, especially in the United States, because it was easy to accuse you of being a traitor who was running interference for Trump. But it's the hold of these ideas over so many mainstream institutions and over so much of the left and over parts of the Democratic Party, which helps to explain why Trump uh, is continuing to do very well in polls for 2024. And I'd like to note here the contrast, whatever people might like or dislike about Keir Starmer, uh, with the United Kingdom, where a Labour leader who has drawn a very clear line of division between himself and the left is running 20 points ahead in the poll. I think that that is a related phenomenon. And finally, I'd just like to say that the last weeks should have made it very obvious how badly wrong these ideas can go. The conflict in the Middle East is very complicated. Um, it does have a long history. I can understand um, that people's uh, sympathies may lie more of one side or, or, or the other. Hopefully they lie to some extent with the civilian victims on both sides. Um, but the unwillingness and the inability of big parts of the left in the last weeks to acknowledge the sheer scale and brutality of a terrorist attack that Hamas perpetrated, killing over 1,400 civilians. The fact that um, big parts of the uh, left movement in the United States, including the Democratic Socialists for America and uh, chapters of Black Lives Matter, actively celebrated this slaughter, um, uh, uh, idolized uh, uh, the paragliders who killed over 250 people at that music festival in, in, in uh, southern Israel. Um, that, I think, is absolutely part and parcel of the topic of my book, because it is um, when you start to see the world through simplistic identity categories, thinking that you can understand a conflict like that in the Middle East, as simply pitting whites versus people of color, colonizers versus the colonized, uh, um, and so on, uh, that you end up with that kind of deep uh, moral uh, uh, lack of clarity. Mm, thank you. In what ways has your own personal background as a German Jewish person shaped the writing of this book? Well, I mean, I think part of my book is to argue that we should be reluctant to um, define ourselves too much by our own identities, which does not, of course, mean that we need to deny them or that I'm unaware of the fact that that's shaped me in certain ways, as I'm sure it has shaped you in certain ways. Um, but I really worry when uh, many of our social practices today encourage a kind of personal identity trap. I've talked about the political 
elements of this trap very briefly, and perhaps we can delve into it more in the conversation. But at a personal level, I think if you're teaching students, as many schools now do, that the way to really find recognition and belonging in the world is to conceive of yourself primarily by the specific intersection of identities in which you belong, um, that sets you up for failure in that important endeavor. Most of us do want some form of social belonging, some form of social recognition. Um, but I will never fully feel that recognition if I'm treated in an identical way to my brother, even for my brother has a very similar identity to me. Um, and so I, so, so, so I think part of that is, is a personal recognition that that is not what I want to be seen for in the world and what I want to be defined as in the world, certainly not from the outside. Um, you know, there's some other things here, right? One of them is that, um, uh, you know, growing up in Germany, I experienced some outright anti-Semitism. Um, I also experienced a good amount of somewhat creepy philo-Semitism. You know, Germans who wanted to prove to me that they're so sorry for the past and so ashamed of the Third Reich um, that, uh, you know, they love the Jews. Um, and, you know, this took all kinds of absurd forms at the time. This would be more controversial now. Um, it was, you know, people telling me how much they love Woody Allen movies or asking me whether I speak Hebrew and how beautiful the Hebrew language is. I don't speak a word of Hebrew, right? Um and, and I always realized that that didn't help me at all to feel like an equal. It made me feel patronized and like it was actually harder for me to, to develop a truly German identity. And now one of the strange things that's happened when I moved to the United States is that I went from being a representative of sort of the, the, the seminal group of victims in the country, I would say Jews, um, to a representative of a seminal uh, group of perpetrators, which is to say white men. Um, and at this point, white middle-aged men. Um, and and I, in certain social situations, I, I, I came to feel an expectation that I should uh, act in ways or treat people in ways that I hated being treated as in, in Germany. And so perhaps if there is a link, it is my recognition that some of those social customs that are now being embraced are deeply antithetical to equality. One of the, you know, in the book I talk about the more serious uh, uh, progenitors of what I'm calling the identity synthesis. But I also talk about some of their popularizers. Uh, people like Robin DiAngelo, who is one of the best-selling authors in the United States and in the United Kingdom in, in, in 2020. And DiAngelo, a white woman who makes a lot of money as a diversity trainer, says that every time a white person interrupts a black person by bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Right? That, first of all, takes, tells me that she doesn't have black friends because... Part of what it is to have friends is that you sometimes interrupt each other. But secondly, it's precisely this sort of, you know, in a social situation, in a strange way, uh, you know, trying to prove to each other how aware you are of the identity and sort of being over. That's exactly what I hated experiencing in Germany. And I, and I think that has informed my worries about people like D'Angelo not being a good guide for how we create real social equality in, in Britain or the United States or elsewhere today. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why do you use the term identity synthesis in your book rather than identity politics or woke politics or even cultural Marxism, as like some people do? Yeah. um, So one of the strange things about this ideology is that we really don't have a term that's uncontroversial that we can use as a serious, uh, as a basis for serious debate, right? Um, Some people in Britain consider themselves socialists. Some people don't like the idea of socialism at all. But all of them can agree to refer to, you know, a broad um, uh, body of ideas that has some internal tensions, but that is, you know, recognizably uh, an an ideology that hangs together as socialist, right? Um, I think we now have a new ideology that has become dominant on the left, an ideology that puts... Uh, ideas about the role that identity plays in the world and the role that identity should play in the world at the very basis of our political thinking. But we don't have a coherent term for it. Um, uh, You know, woke is the most recognizable term. It used to be a self-description, right? Um, uh, uh, Activists proudly called themselves woke um, five or six years ago. Um, But now it's become such a term of opprobrium that when you talk about woke this and woke that, you sort of just sound like an old man shouting at the clouds. And um, uh, I think it makes it harder to uh, have a serious debate. Um, Identity politics, I think, is a little bit too broad. Um, You know, Frederick Douglass in the United States and and Martin Luther King or uh, some of the key key members of the civil rights movement um, uh, or the gay rights movement uh, have also engaged in what might be called forms of identity politics, but because what they were asking for was inclusion in a set of universal institutions, was to live up to the promise of these longstanding uh, rules. Um, I actually uh, am inspired by them and agree with them on many things. My my concern is about an identity, an ideology that explicitly stands in opposition to these ideas, says, as Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory, said, that we should reject the quote-unquote defunct racial equality ideology of a civil rights movement. So identity politics for me is too broad. And cultural Marxism, the third possibility you you mentioned, um, simply is uh, misdescribing the nature of the phenomenon. Um, So the idea here is that you take something like the Marxist tradition, 
you take out economic categories like social class and you put in these identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. Now, the first problem with this is that I just don't think there's enough left. Um, in America, I say that it's a little bit like taking the bat out of baseball. I guess here I'd have to say it's like taking the bat out of cricket or the ball out of football. Or, you know, um, doesn't work quite as well. But there's just not enough meat left on the ideology once you take economic categories out. And as a matter of intellectual history, it turns out to be wrong to think that these ideas originate in you know Marx and uh, you know Adorno and Horkheimer and, and and other people like that. Um, that is just not when I started to read the intellectual history what turned out to be the true story. And so I call it the identity synthesis simply because it is a synthesis of different intellectual influences which I locate in postmodernism and postcolonialism and critical race theory, and it is centrally about the role that identity plays in our society. But as, as Freddie de Boer, the American author, has said. I don't care what you call it, you know, just tell me what I'm allowed to call it so we can have a serious discussion about it. If you want to call it the thing, let's call it the thing. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, to what extent do you think this um, new identity synthesis, as you put it, um, and the conflict between this and the kind of liberalism that you espouse, to what extent do you think that conflict is an intergenerational conflict? Um, so, you know, it may have elements of a generational conflict. Um, certainly we often see that new ideas, uh, uh, you know, spread as Thomas Kuhn pointed out in the structure of scientific revolutions through a kind of process of generational change. Um, but I think it would be a very big mistake to assume that older people aren't tempted by these ideas or that young people invariably end up embracing them. I think one of the big reasons why these ideas have been able to gain so much influence so quickly is that many older uh, people who are in charge of institutions um, did not have a character of their convictions and actually became semi-converts to this new ideology or at least thought of this new ideology as sufficiently aligned with their own that they were not uh, able to recognize how it undermined some of the other core commitments and 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 would 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 land us in this trap we're we're talking about today. And among younger generations, um, you know, it is a minority, uh, and not necessarily an ethnic or religious minority, but an ideological minority um, that that really embraces these ideas. There may also be, and it's too early to say this with 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 confidence, and so I've never written about this. Um, there may also starting be starting to be pushback among the youngest people. When I look, you know, at, at, at students I had four or five years ago, they were excited by these ideas. They were true believers. Um, uh, you know, they really thought this is what's going to allow them to remake the world. When I look at the students I have now at university, they're deeply steeped in these ideas. They've been told from 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 when they're six years old that this is how they should see the world. Often they've been raised in accordance with the social practices inspired by these ideologies. Many of my students now have been part of mandatory uh, racially segregated affinity groups where often teachers came into their classroom as early as you know when we were eight or seven or six and said, if you're black, you go over there, and if you're Asian American, you go over there, and if you're Latino, you go over there, and if you're white, you go to a fourth classroom. So they're kind of growing up uh, with this atmosphere, but in part as a result, they see its flaws. They've seen classmates of theirs canceled over... Um, supposed microaggressions um, when we were 12 or 13. Um, they've had countless uh, lectures and trainings 
um, uh, about uh, uh, you know all of these ideas and concepts, and many of them. Uh, uh, therefore, don't find it exciting. Uh, think of it as what the adults are telling them, and so on. So, I think the generational question is hard. What's much clearer is the uh, question of social class, which is to say that the best studies we have in, in the United States, in Britain, and other places show that the people who really buy into these ideas, uh, the, the people who are more in common, um, in one study has called sort of progressive activists, who roughly correspond to the views I'm talking about are disproportionately white, disproportionately affluent, and disproportionately highly educated. What would you say to those that argue that the desire for the identity synthesis is shaped by the fact that um, many people want a sense of belonging, um, a sense of belonging which would have in the past been expressed through affiliation to religion, affiliation to being a member of a political party, affiliation to being a member of a local civic institution, and of the decline of institutional religion, the decline of party political membership, the decline of civic local institutions, where should people go to seek a sense of belonging? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when I was at university, I probably assumed that the process of secularization which was continuing to advance in already very secular societies like Britain, well, was at university and, you know, the continent where I grew up, uh, but also in the United States, which is sort of behind the curve, but increasingly looks like it's simply, you know, 30 years later, um, but the development looks quite similar, actually. Um, there's going to be a good thing, right? That religion had often inspired hatred, conflict, mutual dehumanization, as we're seeing in the world right now again. Um, and that uh, uh, societies becoming less and less religious would make them more and more tolerant, would allow us to see what we have in common more. I think we're seeing in the United States in particular uh, that this has turned out to be a very mixed blessing. But a lot of the people who no longer go to church every Sunday um, find their belonging um, in extreme online communities or simply become so lonely, so withdrawn from any genuine social ties but they're much more uh, vulnerable to extremist appeals. Um, uh, that helps to explain the rise of people like Donald Trump, but I think it also helps to explain uh, some of what we're seeing on the left. Um, I, I disagree with the very insightful and, and smart um, uh, uh, American commentator John McWhorter, who thinks that uh, uh, what he calls wokeism is literally a religion but it literally should be thought of as a religion. I don't think that's true. I think um, uh, it has the characteristics of a political ideology that are shared by, by, by many different political ideologies. And things like Marxism were not a religion, even though some of their adherents might have had a sort of form of religious fervor. Uh, but what's certainly true is that it's speaking to a deeply uh, religious and in some ways specifically Puritan um, moral imaginary um, you know, when Europeans look at America, they sometimes uh, imagine that uh, Puritanism continues to have a hold because of, um, you know, because society is relatively more religious. But I think that the shape of Puritan ideology has as much hold in communities around Harvard University, where I've lived for a long time, for example, than it does in the South or the Midwest. Um, the substance of the beliefs they hold are very different. They don't believe in the kind of 
um, uh, constraints on sexual morality and so on that the ancestors believed in, even though they actually mostly lead very conventional bourgeois lives. Um, but certainly sort of once they are out of their mid-20s and you know, settle down and get married and have children and so on, much more so than in Europe. Um, but uh, when it comes to the need to live in a morally pure and clean community, and the ways in which people who are suspected of befouling that purity are cast out, um, I think that the people whose uh, propositional views at a superficial level have least similarity to the Puritan ancestors actually are the inheritors of a Puritan moral imagination uh, to a remarkable extent. What is Tumblr and what is the significance of Tumblr in shaping the identity synthesis? So in the book, I, uh, it has four parts, right? And the first part really tells the intellectual history of where these ideas come from, um, explaining how thinkers like Michel Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and um, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw together developed the set of ideas that made, uh, that provided the ground material uh, for what has become the identity synthesis or what has become, if you prefer that term, Wokeness. Um, that's a very interesting and funny story. Um, it's a slightly surprising story. I think many of the people who developed those ideas um, came to regret it, uh, would not like the ideology in its modern shape, um, but that's how intellectual history often, often works. Um, and then the second part of the book, um, I go on to ask, well, how is it that in about 2010, those ideas had started to be very influential uh, on university campuses, on uh, parts of the academy? But they really continue to be marginal to society as a whole. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, in a paper uh, sort of reflecting on the 20th anniversary of critical race theory, uh, said, you know, it's great, we've had good careers, we've established our position in universities, um, and that's all nice and well, but we are not going to have much influence on society. In fact, this guy, Barack Obama, just got elected and his basic political philosophy is fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory, something that people who think that critical race theory is simply sort of nice liberalism should remember. Um, and therefore, our uh, prospect for influence in the world has gotten even more remote. Well, over the next 10 years, I think her influence ended up surprising Crenshaw and many of the other theorists that were part of this movement. It started to really uh, be popularized, be repackaged uh, in a way that could go viral and could um, not just become very popular among a subsection of young people, um, but could uh, ex exert tremendous influence on politics and our mainstream institutions. And Tumblr, I think, is a key part of that story. Um, it is uh, one of the first social media uh, platforms, microblogging platform, as it was known at the time. Um, it had a lot of uh, teenage uh, users, as well as some in the early 20s. It allowed a great variety of forms of content, from text to photos to memes to short videos. Um, and it allowed, crucially, a form of self-tagging, self-discovery, where you could put on some kind of label, which often became an identity label, and then search for others that shared that. And uh, the way this worked out is that it greatly expanded how people could identify themselves. When you think about identity formation in an analog world, 
you really need to find a, a bunch of people who agree with you on your identity for it to be meaningful. And if you're going to a school, then that meant that you needed to find 10 people in your local school that shared that kind of identity. And so uh, that limited the possible range of identities to ones that had, you know, about 1% of the population. Otherwise, you just wouldn't find enough people to co-create at that crucial moment. Well, Tumblr, because of this tagging mechanism, which was new at the time, just blew that constraint out of the water. And it became the place where many of the identity labels that have had a, a broader career since um, uh, came to be uh, uh, experimented with, including many of the gender labels, um, but also new forms of sexual orientation, like demisexual, all of that originated on Tumblr. And then when you started having these tribes where everybody defined themselves by these new identity labels and you had to interact somehow, you needed an ideology that holds those interactions together, a kind of meta-ideology. And that came to be where you started to think about microaggressions and the dangers they pose, about the fact that when you offend somebody, it matters that that was the outcome, not what your intent was. Um, and it also started to take on some of the sort of viral expressions um, that helped proselytize this ideology. And through a few transformations in the written form in places like Ford Catalog and EverydayFeminism.com, uh, and then some technological changes which um, uh, favored uh, content which could spread on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook along identity lines. Um, these ideas surprisingly quickly entered a broader mainstream audience. To what extent are the mainstream media also responsible for the identity synthesis? In the book, you mention the increase of terms like white privilege and structural racism in the New York Times and in the Washington Post over the past 10 years. Uh, yeah, I think this is this is an important part of the story, and in a way, I was, was just where we're letting off, right? Um, so it's remarkable how quickly these ideas came to be influential in uh, mainstream news organizations. And there's two pathways for this. The first is part of a wider instance of what I'm calling the short march through the institutions, which is to say that by about 2010, um, so many people were uh, being schooled in these ideas in elite universities in particular. Uh, that they started to transform the workplaces into which they fanned out. And the second is that uh, social media algorithms really uh, favored certain kinds of first-person stories rooted in genuine experiences and sometimes less uh, persuasive claims of victimhood. Um, you know, uh, when uh, the website Vox.com, which became influential very quickly, was founded, a majority of uh, the traffic to this website came from people uh, who went to the homepage, right? Who typed in Vox.com into the web browser and said, is there anything there that I want to read? That favored um, content which would appeal to, you know, most of uh, a, a publication's readers. Um, so a publication might have a kind of profile, more left-leaning, more right-leaning, um, but each article had to appeal to a broad cross-section of its usual readers. Um, by about 2015-2016, the distribution mechanism had changed in such a way that most of the traffic came from Facebook or Twitter. And people on Facebook or Twitter often connected to others who share an identity category. And so suddenly these first-person stories about you know, the experiences I had growing up as a German Jew or growing up as an Asian American or, you know, as a disabled, whatever, whatever, right? Those could spread along those social media 
networks in, 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 in new ways. That's where the clicks were. And so suddenly, if you went back to that website in 2017, 2018, the form of it had changed from a sort of more analytical frame to a much more first personal frame. And the politics had changed along with it. It had become a lot about these experiences of, of discrimination and really putting them at the center of a, of a worldview. And in, at the time, the New York Times and the Washington Post were in deep financial crisis, which at least the Times is no longer. But this is the moment when the print revenue was cratering, when the ad revenue from print was cratering. They had not yet built up this massive base of online subscribers that now sustains them. And so they were desperate for clicks. And so they hired a lot of writers that were more adapted, most adapted to this game. And so I do think that uh, these publications ended up uh, uh, sharing a bunch of responsibility for bad ideas being mainstreamed in two ways. First, they published stuff that I think um, was just quite extreme, right? I mean, one 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 op-ed in particular that I'm thinking of in the New York Times uh, was, uh, uh, you know, by by an African American writer saying, "I'm teaching my kids not to be friends with white people because you can never trust white people, and I don't want them to be friends with white people." Effectively, I mean, it's a little bit more subtle than that, but that's the core of the message. I just think that's a irresponsible thing for something like the New York Times uh, to publish. Um, they're free to do so. Um, uh, I just think that that is not where the majority of the audience was. Um, uh, it is not what most Americans or most people in Britain believe. Uh, it just gives an indication of how wide they opened the doors to content that would have, for good reason, I think, been considered quite niche or fringe uh, in previous uh, uh, iterations. And then the other thing that happened is that there were certain champions of these ideas that effectively came to be beyond criticism. Um, you know, people like uh, Robin DiAngelo and, and particularly Ibram X. Kendi, who uh, argued for a very Manichaean view of what they call anti-racism. Uh, according to Kendi, um, uh, you know, everything is either racist or anti-racist. So our conversation is either racist or anti-racist. But, um, you know, this, this pair of scissors I'm holding is either racist or anti-racist. Um, uh, you know, uh, football is either racist or anti-racist, right? There's, there's no middle category. It's surprisingly similar to George W. Bush's claim uh, after 9-11 that you're either with us or against us. But it was widely embraced and celebrated. And I know from many journalists at, at newspapers and magazines in the United States who wanted to write robust critiques of uh, Kennedy's ideas uh, and of uh, the big center for anti-racism that he started at Boston University with tens of millions of dollars in funding and who were told in no uncertain terms that this was uh, not publishable, um, that uh, it would be too controversial um, to, to criticize those, those ideas. Um, that started to change a little bit. Um, Kendi fired most of his staff um, and does not seem to have delivered on any of the promises he made as funders. And there was a scandal big enough that suddenly the floodgates have opened. And um, now you're seeing more critical examination both of that actual institution and of his broader ideas. But for a good number of years, um, you know, mainstream publications just didn't want to go there. And, and that, I think, is really worrying. It's worrying about the state of our public sphere in public opinion, and it helps to explain the decline of trust in these institutions. You know, I have, over the course of the last years, had so many conversations in Britain, in the United States, in continental Europe, with influential people who say something like the sort of things we've been saying in this conversation today, and then add, of course, I would never say this publicly. And people aren't idiots. They feel that. They know that the people in charge of institutions say one thing to each other, and another thing to the public. And so why should they? 
trust them or why should they trust us? Because, you know, you and I at this point are part of those institutions. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. There's more of this discussion in a special extended edit waiting to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. 